Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. I have the privilege of looking together with you at the Word of God. Um, the, the 23rd chapter of, of the book of Matthew is a, uh, a chapter I'm, I'm really, in some respects, not looking forward to. I have not been looking forward to arriving at because it's a, it's a really strong chapter of condemnation. I've called it a Jeremiah. That's a word that comes out of the Bible, comes from the prophet Jeremiah. It's a diatribe. It's, well, it's a series of eight woes pronounced against one particular class of people. But it's in the Bible, and it's there as a warning, as a warning in two directions. One obvious direction is the direction that, that Jesus is speaking to this group about, their, their malevolent um, their malevolent influence on others. And it's a warning to you to be on, on guard against Pharisees, okay? Very clearly, part of the reason this is in the Bible is that you can recognize a Pharisee. It's a long description of them and their fruit and how they act and what they do. And so if we don't learn from that, we're going to be susceptible. And Jesus is warning us against Pharisees, but he's also very clearly warning us against being Pharisees. So it's a double warning against the influence of Pharisees and against becoming Pharisees ourselves. So this morning we're going to read three verses with three woes, but we're going to concentrate on one of them, and that's verse 13. But I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we read Matthew 23, 13 through 15. The Word of God. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, these are the words of Christ, and they're spoken on and reflected on by a man who needs your Holy Spirit as he speaks that his words are not his and by all of us that we might hear your words, that the power of the Spirit might be at work in our lives, and that we might come to conviction by, by this word of yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus spends more time and more, more words, more energy. The gospel writers spend more ink 
on the opposition of Christ to the Pharisees than to Christ's opposition to any other thing, any other single thing, any other group. Pharisees are Christ's inveterate foes, unceasing, uncompromising. No group is more opposed to Christ. No group hates him more. No group is more opposed by Christ. No group is more condemned by Christ. And it's really kind of paradoxical that this is the case. Because if you, and I want to, I want to this morning speak about the, well, the background of the Pharisees and then begin to think about the psychology, the, the inner makeup of the Pharisee. But since we're going to spend several weeks on this, the background is important to understand. And what is really kind of striking when you realize that Jesus spends this entire chapter attacking the Pharisees, criticizing them, in a sustained diatribe that is unequaled perhaps anywhere in the New Testament against one group. A sustained diatribe that is at least the equal of any other single uh, condemnation or pronouncement of woes anywhere in the Bible. You say, David, well, there's whole books like Jeremiah that attack or Isaiah at points. Yes, but those were written over years. They're a collection. This is one single occasion and what a heightened occasion it is. It's very near the end of his life. I mean, you, you think as you approach and you know death is coming near. Most people do not want to f- spend those last days fighting. It's just reality. I go into the hospital where someone's dying and everyone is trying to avoid the fight. There will be fights afterward. The family will fight. But in the hospital with the person dying, as death is coming, people don't want to fight. Jesus spends his last week on earth, the week before his death, fighting. And this is, well, this is the apex of it. This is the highest point of battle. Higher than Jesus in front of the high priests. Higher than Jesus in front of, the, uh, in front of Pilate or Herod. Really, Jesus doesn't answer them. He doesn't say a lot when he's on trial later in the week. But, oh, does he speak to this group, this tribe. And it's, it's strange. It's a paradox that throughout the life of Jesus, the Pharisees, this group that Jesus attacks in these verses, are more open to Jesus than any other religious group. And this paradox becomes bigger as you consider the character of this group. No religious leaders are more open to Jesus than the Pharisees. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night in John 3 to inquire of him, and he was open to Jesus. He came at night, but he was open to Jesus. He was a Pharisee, right? It was a Pharisee who came to ask him. The scribe who tested Jesus just prior to this event by asking him what was the most important commandment And when Jesus said, there's one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and a second like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, this man said to him, right teacher, you have truly stated 
that he is one. There's no one else besides him to love him with all the heart and all the understanding, all the strength, and one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This man was a Pharisee. And it was to this man, this Pharisee, immediately prior to this diatribe that Jesus turned and said, seeing that he gave an intelligent answer, the Bible says, Jesus saw that this man understood the word of God. Jesus said to that man, that Pharisee, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea, who together with Nicodemus claimed the body of Christ and buried it in his own tomb, was a member of the Sanhedrin or the council. And it seems likely that he was of the party of the Pharisees because he seems very unlikely to have been a Sadducee or a chief priest because he had to go and ask for the body. He didn't have authority in that way. The Apostle Paul, the founder of the church, Saul in his early life was a Pharisee of Pharisees in education and his manner of religious life and devotion before he was called by Jesus, he was a Pharisee. Jesus called a Pharisee of Pharisees to be his, his great apostle. Paul had been trained under the foremost Pharisee of his day, a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, you'll remember from the book of Acts, was the member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, who urged that council when they wanted to deal very rashly and harshly with Peter and John. Gamaliel said, hey, 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 hold back a second, guys. Remember when Judas arose and led an uprising and so-and-so did these things that they were put to death and the, the movement fell apart. He said, if, if Jesus is just like them, Jesus being dead by then, if Jesus is just like them, this, this movement is going, to, is going to diminish. It's going to peter out. But, he also added, if this movement's from God, you may find yourself fighting God. That was the chief Pharisee. And he says, watch out. This thing may be of God. And I want to go through the background of this group of religious leaders before turning to so what we learn of them, of their psychology, their, their outlook on life that bred their character, the, the view they had of themselves and of the world that made them Christ's greatest enemies and spawned this form of religion that Jesus despises and abominates. Form that represents not just an isolated situation way back in history, but an ongoing prevalent concern of the church today and a threat to your life, both by your embracing the life of a Pharisee and by your coming under the influence of Pharisees as leaders. Much of what we know about Pharisaism as a sect comes from, especially in its early years, comes only from the Jewish historian we know as Josephus, who was probably a member of this sect himself in his histories. We know, for instance, from Josephus that a number of things. Pharisees were pious. They were middle class, not the upper class. They came from across the spectrum of Jewish society. It was a group with strong support among the ordinary people 
because they were more ordinary people themselves. And according to Josephus, they were, and I read this once and I didn't look it up to make sure of it. And I usually try and look things up, but I read that Josephus said they were especially beloved by wealthy women, which follows with what we read about them taking widows' houses, okay? Um, That's why it always struck me, that thing that Josephus said, at least that I've read that he said. Pharisaism, which is the name we give to the movement that the Pharisees lead. Pharisaism comes from a term, as does the word or the, the, uh, the name Pharisee, which means to be set apart or separated. Set apart, separated. And as you know, to, to be holy, the word that means holy means to be set apart and separated as well. It's from an Aramaic term and it betrays the nature and the character of the group. So it was not, from what we understand, a name that they gave themselves, but it was an attributed name that was adopted by them, accepted initially, eventually adopted, in the same way that the term Protestant became an accepted and then adopted name for those who followed Martin Luther and those who departed from the Roman Catholic Church. The original protesters who became known as the the, the protestants were a group of six princes of the region that Luther lived in in the Holy Roman Empire that protested the, with the, the, the Council of Spire that took away rights that had been enjoyed by those who were following Luther had been enjoyed for probably a decade and so they protested because the emperor withdrew those rights and so the, they and their followers and the followers of Luther were called Protestants, they protested against the, the, the taking away of their rights, became a name for them all. In the same way, Puritan was initially a disparaging term that enemies of serious-minded Protestants in England during the 15 and 1600s called them. They said, oh, they're pure, Puritans. But that name was eventually accepted and embraced. And in the same way, Christian was the name that was given to the followers of Jesus, the disciples in Antioch, which means little Christ, Christian. And that name became a name that was initially accepted and then embraced and became a term of honor. So the movement known as Pharisaism, the religious party of the Pharisees, arose around the time of the exile hundreds of years before Christ. That's where you find the initial growth of this group. This approach to the Jewish faith was taken up by a religious party that eventually became known as the Pharisees. And the reason that they became influential is that after the exile, After Nebuchadnezzar came into Judea and sacked Jerusalem and took all the leaders into exile, there was a question, at least in the eyes of the religious leaders of the Jews, there was a question as to whether Judaism was going to survive. We're we're talking hundreds of years, hundreds of years, maybe over a thousand, over a millennia of there being a tabernacle and then a temple at which God was worshipped. He had said, when you enter the promised land, 
you're to go to the city that I point out. There you're to offer your sacrifices. There you're to worship me. You are not to do it on the high places. And part of the reason that God causes the, the nation of Judea, the southern kingdom, to fall and go into exile is that they haven't worshipped him, as he said, in one place. They've had high places. They've done all the things that the people who were in the land before them did. And so the, now there's no temple. Now Jerusalem is sacked. Now all the priests are taken away. And the Pharisees are committed to keeping Judaism alive in the absence of the temple, in the, in the days of the exile. They saw the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Torah, which spell out the moral and ceremonial law as vital, but difficult to fulfill in the absence of Jerusalem, with everyone in exile. With, and then after the, the, uh, the permission by Darius to go back and the rebuilding of the second temple, which was expanded by Herod, um, it was still difficult because they were living in Jerusalem under foreign domination. They were no longer able to do as they wanted. The Romans could appoint the high priests. There are just many, many things that were fundamentally changed after the exile that the Jews had not had to deal with for hundreds and hundreds of years and so the pharisees are a group of scribes of teachers probably from the levitical classes and group of the tribe of levi but it went beyond that tribe eventually it became a lot of people from judah uh, it was a group that sought to interpret the, the law of god in an ongoingly relevant way so we have no temple what do we do now we have a temple back again, but we don't have the priests. What do we do? Now we have the priests and we have the temple, but what do we do? Because we have the Romans, or before them, the, the various the Antiochus, Epiphanes, and others that, that ruled over Jerusalem. We have foreign overlords. What do we do? How do we worship God? And the Pharisees said, we're going to keep the worship of God on the front burner of Jerusalem. We are going to do this. And the way they did it, was by interpreting the law, the law of God, the whole of the Old Testament, in new and allegorical ways that would make it relevant. So they said, okay, the Bible says this, but we're not allowed to do this anymore. We'll fulfill this in this way. And so they had this, this method of interpretation that became uh, their method, which was allegorical. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were were terribly literal. They were absolute literalists. And only for the five books of Moses, whereas the Pharisees said, no, we take the whole Old Testament. We don't deny the prophets. We don't deny David's poetry. We don't deny anything but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which the Sadducees denied anything but those five. Pharisees said, no, the whole word of God is the word of God. Again, they're better than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were literalists. They said, five books of Moses, don't speak about don't speak about a resurrection. We don't believe in a resurrection. Five books of Moses don't tell us anything about heaven. We don't believe in heaven. And, and they, had to be, they had to find it in black and white in letters so big, even a child could read it if they were going to believe it. That's the Sadducees. Pharisees said, no, the Bible is deep and rich, and we can, we can understand certain things. So, for instance, the Sadducees said, the Bible says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
If a man in a fight knocked out the tooth, the Sadducees said, well, it's got to be a tooth. Pharisees said, well, the Bible is speaking allegorically there. And if the man who lost the tooth is willing to be, to be paid for the loss of his tooth, we will permit a fine instead of a tooth being knocked out. This is the difference. To the Pharisees, the word of God was, in a sense, a living thing. And they were constantly seeking to interpret it in ways that would make it living to people around them. And so the Pharisees had um, at the core of their teaching what was called the oral Torah. And that oral Torah exists still today in the Mishnah and the Talmud. The oral Torah was based upon a theory, it's not found in the Bible, but it was a theory of the Pharisees that God had given Moses the written law, which is found in the Pentateuch, the first five books, but that at that same time, God had given oral law to Moses, spoken law. He had written things and he had spoken things. And Moses had passed on the written things in written form, but he had passed on the oral things in oral form. And that teaching that came down in oral form was seen as being interpretive of the written form and of equal value. If it reminds you of the Roman Catholic view of tradition, it is the predecessor to it in absolutely every way. That we have the tradition of the church and the teaching of the Pope and we have the word of God. This was the Pharisees. The oral Torah became the written Torah. Uh, beside the Torah, the five books, it became written at some point in the post-exilic period when the Pharisees started writing down the teachings of the rabbis. They said the rabbis are the repository of this knowledge of God and they have used it to, to comment on the word of God and that is the, the oral the oral Torah that God has passed down has come down through the rabbis and they wrote it down in the Talmud and the Mishnah, which today are in some respects in current Judaism more important than the Torah. And the reason is the Pharisees gave us modern, modern Judaism. Without Jerusalem, without the temple, without the sacrifices, without a Messiah, which is where the Jewish religion is today because they rejected Christ. And so they, they said that all the prophecies of the Messiah were about David's children and Hezekiah. So they really have no hope of a Messiah. There are a few little branches that may still do that, but vast, vast majority of Jews don't believe in the coming of a son of God or a Messiah who's miraculous. Nothing. So how does Judaism continue? Well, it doesn't continue on the basis of the first five books of the law. Most Jews don't even keep the purity laws anymore. They're, they're not kosher. They don't keep those. But no Jews are offering sacrifices anymore, and the whole of the sacrificial system is gone. So what is the basis of the religion of Judaism today? Well, it's the Mishnah and the Talmud. It's this oral Torah, which has been defined over the centuries and added to by the teachings of the rabbis. So the Pharisees began by trying to keep the, the word of God relevant. And in certain ways, things they did 
were dead on. So the Pharisees said during the the period of the exile and then post the exile, they said, look, we can't survive. You know, that when God put the people of Israel in the promised land, he established in each of the, the, the tribal areas a city that would be owned by the Levites and then had Levites in many of the towns throughout that, that, the promised land, throughout the whole nation. The Levites' job was to teach the law of God. That was their role. All the people would go to Jerusalem where the priests would offer the sacrifices for three festivals every year then they'd go back to their towns and the Levites were to teach the law not always Levites in every town but especially after the exile the existence of this teaching class had been harmed and the 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 work of the there are people now living in the country who had were not Jewish there was just many many things that made it very difficult and so the Pharisees began the tradition of the of the synagogue which is really, in a sense, where the church comes from today. It was a gathering that took place once a week, and it was not a sacrificial gathering. There were no sacrifices offered. Those were done three times a year or on special occasions if you had a child and so forth in Jerusalem. But this was a place where you came and you read the Word of God and you were taught about it and you discussed it with others. Now, how do we know that this was a good innovation? And it was. We know it because the Bible tells us that Jesus went into the the synagogue in Nazareth as was his custom and stood up to read the word of God. So we know that God was in favor of the synagogue and it seems like a rank innovation, like, whoa, but it was good. And it caused people to focus on the word of God. Now, we can't speak of the Pharisees without addressing their arch foes and rivals, the Sadducees. I spoke of them as being literalists. And they were, and they were, they were an evil group. They were, in a sense, you'd say, well, Jesus should have focused on the Sadducees. Because they were just uniformly evil. And yet, strangely, but not, if you think about it, they receive almost no attention from Jesus. Sadducees were the descendants of the upper class, descendants of the priests. They were wealthy. They were influential, much smaller group. They were powerful. They believed, as I said, only what was written by Moses in the Torah, rejecting the rest of the Old Testament because it wasn't given Moses by God. Literalists, they said, we've got to do what it literally says. If it's not there in black and white, in big letters, then I don't believe it. They were logical. They were empirical. Prove it to me. Prove it. Prove it from the word of God. Prove it. Logical, empirical, and cynical. They were materialists. They said, show me it. I want to see it. Sadducees were the Jewish version of the the elites who governed America for many years and even centuries. Those elites that we revere today and speak well of, but who in their own way bowed to God in the kind of confident assurance that God, if he were given the chance, would bow to them as well. Because they were morally superior people. And that is the America of the past. The America in the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, uh, written of as, where the, in Boston, the, um, the Cabots speak only to the Lowells old, famous, New England families. The Cabots speak only to the Lowells. And in this operetta, they say, 
and the Lowells speak only to God. That's how elevated the Lowells were. Well, so the Sadducees, imagine a religious system in a country governed by the first century equivalent of Thomas Jefferson. That that pious hedonist, that that God-honoring exciser of Scripture who cut about the part of the Bible and said, this is the part I like and I don't believe in this part. Imagine, and wealthy and elite and educated and logical. Imagine a, a religion that's ruled by Thomas Jefferson and you have the Sadducees. Pharisees were not only the polar opposites of the Sadducees, but they were their chief enemies. They took the whole Old Testament seriously. They were the people who kept Judaism alive. Judaism today is direct result of Pharisaic teaching. The living ability to change the word to and adapt it to circumstances that keeps Judaism in the absence of the temple, in the absence of the sacrifices, in the absence of all that the Old Testament Jews held dear is a result of Pharisaism. So this is the crowd that opposes Jesus, from which his greatest enemies were drawn. This is the movement that Christ criticized more vehemently and opposed more powerfully than any other group, and no other group even came close in the opposition of Christ to it. You would think that the Pharisees would be the ones that Jesus would cozy up to, that these would be his natural allies, but it was not so. They were his chief enemies, and their legacy is the Jewish denial of Jesus as Messiah today, a denial that is made possible along with the word of God only by their allegorizing and adding to it all their teachings. Why was it so? Why was it inevitable that the Pharisees would be Jesus' greatest enemies? And in this chapter, we see a number of answers. But the first and most important is that these are the good guys. They are the biblical ones. They are the believing ones. The guardians of orthodoxy. The truly believing Jews. But convinced of their own superiority and unwilling to cede their position as God's agents, God's voice, God's power, God's authorities to anyone at all, even Christ, Jesus says to them, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They are gatekeepers of heaven. They stand at the door and guard it. They keep the gate. They are the keepers of the flame, the faithful ones to the law, the ones who are dedicated to the past and the traditions of the past. And yet they are deadly to the people of Israel because though they guard the gates of heaven, they don't enter themselves. They claim to be the gatekeepers but they stand in the gate 
and they keep others from entering. Are you a gatekeeper who stands in the gate and keeps others from entering? Do you claim to be the voice of God in your family? The patriarch, the father, but no one will go beyond you and you won't go in yourself. I can't tell you how many times in our history as a church we've had fathers come in here who say, I'm the patriarch, I'm the leader of this family, but woe betide the child in that home who actually gets a scent, a hint of the living God in his life. That father will not have it. A daughter who says, you know, if the father is this kind of father who wants his daughter to go to school and loves everything about education and money and success, the daughter says, you know, I want to get married. And the father says, no. Can't tell you how many times we've seen this as a church. No. You're going to go and you're going to get your schooling and you're going to get so that you can make money and then maybe you can think about it. Well, that's a Pharisee. Or a father who's a rebel, an absolute rebel against anyone and anything. And that father has a son. He says, you know what? I'm going I'm to join the church. I'm going to submit. And the father says, you're no son of mine. We don't do that. God's our ruler. We don't need to be under men. You are... Many of us make our sins the obstacle to our children. We say, you can come as far as I go, but don't go any further. We stand in the doorway and we will not go in ourselves. And we say to our children and all those around us, don't go any further than me. You go further than me and you're rabid. You go further than me and you're a radical and enthusiastic, crazy man. And I don't want you going further. I disown you. You go further than me. You can go as far as I go and that's it. And so what is motivating to these men? Well, I'll tell you what's motivating to them, their pride. They want to be the chief dogs. They want to be in control. And they don't want anyone else to let the dogs out. You know, they're the, the keepers of the pound of heaven. And they'll let the dogs out, but don't let anyone else let the spirit of God loose. No, you know, I define it. It's, the way it is every time that there's a great work of God. The greatest enemies of it are the pastors who haven't seen the Holy Spirit work in their church or in their lives. It's always the way it is. Pharisees have always been with us. They always will be with us. They stand and oppose because if they acknowledge what God is doing, then they have to submit. And so these guys hate Jesus. They can't stand Jesus, who is the epitome of everything they've worshipped up until this time. He is the fruition of the entire Old Testament they claim to be servants of. It's there before them, and they go, no, no, prove it, prove it, prove it. He can never prove it. He can never do enough to convince them. They are the top dogs, and don't let anyone come against them. And they do it piously, and they do it humbly, and there are good men in their midst, but this is the character of that movement. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard against being like them. One of the, one of the finest verses in the Bible is that verse where John the Baptist's disciples come back to him, and he has been the top dog in Judaism for years. Gone around, crowds following him. People just, they're actually saying, are you the Messiah? They're worshiping him almost. Jesus comes on the scene, and suddenly the crowds aren't following John. They're following Jesus, right? You know this. And the disciples of John go to him and say, Master, you know, this Jesus. He's got everyone. They're all following him, not you anymore. They're upset. And John the Baptist, that prince of men, he says, ah, no. He's the one. He's the Lamb of God. He said that. Then he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. Fathers, I hope it's our desire that our children go beyond us. And I hope that if our children take the word of God more seriously and and holiness more seriously and faith more seriously than we do, that we won't plunk ourselves and smack in the middle of their path and say, over my dead body like the Pharisees did to everyone in Judaism. We need our children to go further than we've gone because we aren't the top dogs. We're not John the Baptist. We're just really fallen proud men and if in our pride we establish ourselves as the kings of the world and the ones to be emulated the ones who have all the wisdom we've killed our children we've killed this church we've killed our nation so pharisees are gatekeepers evil gatekeepers who stand in the door and say you can't get past me And I pray that God keeps us from this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that we will not have the spirit, the thoughts, the life, the character of the Pharisees, but make us to be John the Baptist, willing to see others go further, willing, Father, to become nothing so that you are glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.